for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. going to be an amazing few months together. I hope you're excited about that. It's going to be a wonderful study through the book of Romans. And uh, let me just start out with a sort of a side question. How many of you recently have seen the newest Star Wars movie that came out this last December? Okay, that's a lot of us. Good. If you haven't, that's okay. But if you have, you're probably going to rec- uh, recognize this, this map up on the screen. Uh, this map shows us exactly how to get to Luke Skywalker. We saw this map in, in the first uh, part of the trilogy here, The Force Awakens. Luke Skywalker had gone into exile, and, and uh, he, he, he was one of the last living Jedi knights. And so uh, he's basically in hiding until we can piece together this map and uh, go and find him and ask for his help because the galaxy uh, needs the Jedis. Now, on this map, there are thousands and thousands of stars and uh, planets uh, to navigate. And this, this map shows us how far uh, each planet is from the next and exactly how to get in between the solar systems on this journey to, to the planet Octo to find Luke Skywalker there. It is a complete map covering all the details that will lead our team to, to, to the reunion with this, this powerful Jedi. Uh, similarly, brothers and sisters, Paul's epistle to the Romans is as close to a complete spiritual map to true biblical Christianity that we have. It is a map that leads us to the true gospel, the power of God unto salvation. While Paul's other letters, Galatians, Colossians, and Ephesians, are important and, and wonderful, Paul's letter to the Romans brings us exactly where we need to go. Theologian N.T. Wright said, Romans is, by common consent, Paul's masterpiece. It dwarfs most of his other writings, an alpine peak towering over hills and villages. Over the next six months, church, we are about to take this map and climb the spiritual mountain that is the book of Romans together. And from that height, I promise you that you will see God's beauty in powerful and inspirational ways. The book of Romans has been called the greatest letter ever written. It is Paul's longest letter, which is why it's first in the Pauline corpus. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the English poet and literary critic best known for his analysis of Shakespeare's plays, declared this book to be the most profound work in existence. It is a powerful book. It was the book of Romans that that was the blade that God used to slice through the heart of St. Augustine. As a young man, Augustine was at the time deep in a life full of licentiousness and sin, having fathered a child out of wedlock and living in wanton pleasure. 
He was taken aback when he heard a little child in the yard nearby singing a song that says, Tola Lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he took that child's voice as being the voice of God to him. He had a copy of the book of Romans nearby, and he picked it up and he read one verse in chapter 13. He put the book down, and his life was changed forever. Think about that. The world was blessed with St. Augustine, the confessions, the city of God, all of his great theological works, because of one verse out of this book, the book of Romans. Friends, this is no ordinary book. As a pastor, one of the things that fascinates me is change. How do people actually change? That's what actually interests me about the book of Romans. It is a book that has a track record for repeatedly changing the world, and it does that by changing individual people. Let me ask you a question. Where in your life do you need change in the year 2020? Perhaps some of you need change in your family. Perhaps some of you need a change at work or a change in your attitude or a, a spiritual change that you need for a habit that you know you need to break in your life or some other kind of change. Whatever that is for you, I want to remind you that the, the book of Romans has a track record for bringing real and lasting, a genuine change inside of the human heart because Christianity teaches that the power to change is revealed in the gospel, God's righteousness revealed by faith. There's this other scene in the movie, The Force Awakens, where Rey first encounters Luke Skywalker's lightsaber. This thing is like kind of calling to her, and uh, she can feel the power, and, and she opens up this treasure chest where she finds it, and she, she's just kind of looking at this amazing sword and realizing the, the battles that have been fought and won because of this powerful tool. This is the word picture that came into my mind when I thought about the book of Romans. Do we realize what spiritual battles have been fought and won using this amazing sword? Today, you have a copy of that sword in front of you, perhaps even in your hands right now. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles to church with you through this series and open them up to the book of Romans and go through this together. Today, as an introductory message, I want to go through three things with you. I want to take a look at the big intro. I want to take a look at the big picture and I want to take a look at the big idea, the big intro, the big picture, and the big idea. Before we dig into God's word, would you pray with me? Father, we pause our lives for just a moment on Sunday mornings to gather in your house, and we thank you that we can be in church today. We thank you that we can study your word, for we know that you have preserved these words for us and that it is in it that you have invested your power for our salvation. So we ask that you would assist us in understanding today for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me begin with verse one. Here we begin right up front as Paul closely follows conventional letter writing formulas used in the ancient world. We will see a greeting in verses 1 through 7, followed by an expression of thanksgiving in verses 8 through 15, and then an introduction to the topic or the reason why he's writing in verses 16 and 17. If you lived in Bible times, this is how you would start your letters, a greeting, a thanksgiving, and then the purpose for your letter. And so verse 1 starts like this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I like that you can see the sender right away. It's kind of like email, right? You want to know who has sent it. That helps you decide whether or not you want to open that thing. Right at the beginning, it says, this is from Paul. And Paul begins by telling us who he is. And notice, he doesn't start with his pedigree or his education or his resume, which were all very impressive. Instead, he starts with that which gave him his highest sense of identity. He is a servant or a bondservant of Christ Jesus. The Greek word is doulos. It means slave. It could refer to somebody who's voluntarily entered into slavery to pay a debt. Regardless, Paul's basic point here is to tell us that his master, in every sense, the one he submits to, is Jesus Christ. When it comes to Romans, my friends, we are not dealing with a man and his genius. We are dealing with a man and his master. He continues unpacking his identity as next he calls himself an apostle. The Greek word apostolos means messenger, delegate, or sent one. In New Testament times, this word was used generically in the commissioning of what were called apostolic ships. Uh, They were ships that were called and sent with cargo with a purpose. Here, Paul is establishing his authority as one that's sent by Jesus Christ himself to carry a precious, precious message. As you may remember, Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. Rather, Paul met Jesus post-resurrection on the road to Damascus and was called into ministry by him, which means this was not a job Paul selected himself for. No, he was set apart by God himself. Paul, the bondservant, the apostle. Next, he is set apart for the gospel of God. The good news, the euangelion. What is the gospel? Let's get to know this thing that Paul has devoted his entire life to. For this, I want you to look with me at verses 2 through 4. And let me encourage you to kind of buckle your seatbelts as we go through the book of Romans because it is very rich in theological teaching. And so you really have to pay attention. But it's good for the body of Christ to learn these things. Verse 2 through 4. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the gospel? Answer, it's a message about Jesus Christ. The gospel is clearly tied to Jesus, but who is Jesus? Look how Paul answers that question. Jesus was prophesied in the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament, verse 2. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, born of David as to his earthly life or according to the flesh, verse 3, which means Jesus was fully human. That will be very important later in our study. But also, Jesus is God, verse 4a. He is declared with power to be the Son of God. Further, he says Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 4b. And lastly, Jesus is Lord, verse 4. Now, just step back and look at those verses. This is what theologians would call a high Christology. I have a good friend of mine. We're very close, and he is not a Christian. But yet he tells me, well, Dave, don't you understand? Jesus is one of my most favorite and respected teachers. That's not enough. Uh, Jesus is not just a respectable religious figure or a good moral teacher. No, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, fully God, fully man, raised from the dead, and declared with power to be the very Son of God. Paul wants the Romans to know two things about his message. 
First, it is all about the gospel, and the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. Let me put that on the screen for you. In theology, we call this being Christocentric. It is all about the gospel, and the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. Christocentric is just a $20 word that means all the theological planets that make up the galaxy orbit around Jesus Christ. He is the center. While we affirm worship of all three members of the Holy Trinity, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. Which leads us to the small question about what is absolutely central. What is it really all about? Uh, If you follow the Star Wars trilogy, you know there's this scene where they're explaining the Force uh, to Luke and then later to Rey. And and they say, you know, Yoda is teaching, the Force is everything. It's everywhere. It's it's, it's how you live your life. According to Luke and Princess Leia and Yoda and and Rey and Star Wars, it is all about the Force. According to the Apostle Paul, it is all about the gospel, and the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. Next verse, verse 8. Through him, uh, verse 5, sorry. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. If you could back up a few slides there. Verse 6. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Then he says who he is writing to. If you could find verse 7 for me there. He says this. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter that he is writing is addressed to the church in Rome. Rome is the imperial city. It is the seat of power and will remain so for the next 300 years. And Paul has heard reports that a church has not only started there, but it is thriving. Romans is the only letter uh, where Paul writes to a church that he did not plant himself. Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say the city of Rome was the center of the world. It was the city that was built on seven hills. It was the city to which all roads led. It was the city that wasn't built in a day. This was the capital of the empire. This is where they they had their pantheons of, of gods that stood with statues of Mars, Saturn, Venus, Apollo, and of course, Jupiter. This is where the emperor lived at the time, Emperor Nero. He ruled from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. with his circus and all of its savage gladiator entertainment. Paul's writing in A.D. 57. He's writing from a nearby city called Corinth. He's writing on his third missionary journey. Before he ever arrives, though, there is already a thriving Jesus community here in the city of Rome, Jews and Gentiles, who are infiltrating the capital of the world with the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just think about that moment. It is 25 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Christianity at that time, 25 years earlier, was made up of 12 men, 12 very scared men, 12 very scared men who were given a commission. And now here we are, It is less than 25 years later. We are 2,997.4 miles away from Jerusalem here in Rome. There are no airplanes. There are no cars. There are no trains. There was no TV. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no internet. There was no social media. But we have gone from 12 scared men all the way to the capital of the known world, Rome, And along the way, there have been thousands upon thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people placing their faith in this Jesus Christ. Now, how is that possible? 
The only way this is possible is the promise found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so here's this group of Christians, and here they receive their letter from, from the great apostle Paul that they've heard about. Can you just imagine being one of the Christians in church that day in Rome and receiving this letter for the first time? Did they have any idea what this letter would become? Do they have any idea that Rome, this pagan city, would one day be like majority Christian? Do you think that God knew that when he inspired Paul to, to pick up his pen and grab his secretary and to begin working through this book together? Of course he did. Friends, this is something that we're facing today. We live in a culture that is increasingly less influenced by Christianity. We need the faith of Paul to believe again in the power of the gospel. Amen. We move now to verses 8 through 15, which make up the traditional section of thanksgiving or gratitude. It was customary in ancient letters to start with the positive and build some rapport. Yet again, Paul's going to go way beyond this ancient, ancient etiquette to teach us more about the gospel. Now, this series is going to feel a little different. It's a doctrinal letter, and so we're, we're going to dig into some rich and dense theology and really seek to love God with all of our minds together during this season. So let me just encourage you to get into your Bible and just pay attention to try to see what God is saying here. Verse, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how I constantly remember you. How? In my prayers at all times. I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way might be open for me to come to you. I long to see you, he says, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Pause. Here we begin to see Paul's heart for the Romans. Paul is both pastoral and passionate. He is thankful and he prays for the Romans, this, this church that he did not plant, whose faith has become known throughout the Roman Empire. And he is hoping to get to Rome himself. Why? Because of the wine, the grapes, the food, the wonderful architecture there? No. He wants to do ministry in Rome. And so he says here in verse 13... I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I, I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated, he says, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Let's stop there. I want you to notice two I am statements here that Paul makes. First one is he says, I am obligated. Did you see that? He says, I am obligated. Literally, it reads, I am a debtor. Now, on the one hand, Paul has never met them. How can you be indebted to someone that you have never even interacted with? If I borrow $100 from you, I am indebted to you until I give you back the $100, right? But how can you be indebted to someone that you've never even met? The answer is that there is another way to be indebted to someone and that is if someone else gave me $100 and said, make sure you give it to so-and-so, I am now indebted to so-and-so until I deliver that $100 to so-and-so, right? This is the sense in which Paul says he's indebted. God has entrusted him 
with a gift for the church, and he is indebted to the church until he gives them that gift. So Paul says, I'm indebted to you. I'm obligated to you. And secondly, he says this, I'm eager. I am eager to preach the gospel. Did you see that? Now, at this point, we might want to point out some confusion. Isn't Paul writing to the Christians in Rome? Why then does he want to preach the gospel to them? Is he perhaps talking about an evangelistic ministry once he arrives? Commentators and scholars debate this question, but you may ask, why emphasize the gospel to those who already believe in Rome? Allow me to suggest that the answer that Paul is pushing us to see is that the gospel is the source of all spiritual growth. In other words, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It is also for us longtime Christians. The gospel is that which not only saves us, but it guides us continually in our actions and in our attitudes. Uh, one of my favorite commentators for this series, who I suspect you will hear from regularly, is Dr. Douglas Moo, uh, who writes this, preach the gospel, the phrase, will refer to the ongoing work of teaching and discipleship that builds on initial evangelization. Allow me to illustrate what I'm talking about because this is so important. Uh, recently, I was talking to one of my coworkers here at the church, and uh, her son is in medical school, and she was describing the occasion where her son first got his white coat. And of course, her and her husband went down as parents to, to be part of this elaborate ceremony. In fact, I, I brought a video with it on the screen. You can, you can play that video, and you can see kind of what the ceremony was like. Now, for a medical student, this is a significant milestone in your education to get the white coat. First, you had to get really good grades on the MCATs. You had to get into medical school. And you had to also complete just about like your first semester in order to get this white coat. But as she began to explain the process to me, she said the, the white coat ceremony wasn't really the end of his training. It was really just kind of like the beginning of his training. In other words, the medical students are not yet what they will be but they have now been given the tools to grow in their training. So it is with the gospel. When you receive Jesus Christ, you have received your white coat. Now you have the tools that you need to begin to grow and to mature and to develop in your training towards Christian maturity. The gospel is the white coat you wear as you grow in Christ-likeness. See, at the root of every single sin in my life is a failure to either fully recognize or an abject rejection of the gospel. It is the sin behind every sin I ever commit. It's the sin behind my anxiety. It is the sin behind my bitterness. I am failing to understand and believe the gospel. Think about a sin in your life and ask yourself, how are you rejecting the gospel when you sin in that way? How would believing the gospel help you? This is a theme that we will dig down into deeply when we get later on to Romans 6 and, and 7. So Paul longs to preach the gospel to those who are at Rome so they might spiritually grow more and more and more. Now before we get too far into this letter, I, I want to pause and just give you now an overview of the whole book. Before we get too far along in our journey, let's look at the map to see the big picture of the book of Romans. It's, it's important for this series that you see and you know how Romans is constructed so that you know where we're going. You don't want to lose the forest through the trees. So if you have a bulletin, you can pull that out. There's a chart in there that I'd like to show you. 
Concerning the structure of Paul's letter, it begins with an introduction, chapters 1, verses 1 through 17, and it ends with a conclusion, chapter 15, 14 through 16, 27. Every one of Paul's letters has an introduction and conclusion. Romans is no different. The body or center of the letter can be broken down into two more sections. The first part, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 11, verse 36, can be summarized by the word doctrine. The second part of the body of the letter, chapter 12, 1, verses 12, verse 1 through 15, 13, we can, we can summarize with the word duty. The doctrine section is 298 verses long, or 70% of the book, whereas the duty section is 71 verses long, or 16% of the book. And so you can see that Paul puts the majority of his effort talking about doctrine or theology. The doctrine section contains the map or the blueprints that we were talking about earlier. Nowhere in all of Scripture do we have such a comprehensive and complete presentation of what it means to be a Christian than right here. Then Romans 12, verse 1 begins with a very important word, the word therefore, which looks back and it looks forward. It's a hinge verse, very important, we'll get there. Now, a major theme in the book of Romans is the theme of justification. So Paul is going to talk a lot about justification, and his, his teaching will be organized around three different questions about, four different questions about it. Uh, in chapters one through three, it's about justification. Why do I need it? Now, you might ask right off the bat, what is justification? Of course, we'll talk much more about this in the coming series, but just consider the word for a moment. We use that word justified in our everyday lives, don't we? To be justified is to be right, to be okay, to be good with respect to another person or issue. If a young man is speeding on the highway and pulled over and the officer says, did you know you were going 20 miles over the speed limit? And the young man says, yes, but my wife is pregnant and she's about to have the baby in the car, the officer might say, you are good, keep going, you're justified. Romans talks about being justified before God. When you stand before God, will there be anything accusing you, anything against you, or will you be okay, good, justified before God? To be justified is at the core a legal issue, a justice issue. And let me say something very important. The most dangerous situation you can have in your life is to think you are okay with God and you're not. In these first three chapters, this is why Paul speaks to three different groups of people who thought they were okay with God. But Paul is going to show them their sins like a mirror and their wrongdoing. And he says, this will stand against you before God one day. The first three chapters are just devastating. Paul gets all of us. He doesn't preach to people's felt needs. He preaches to people's real needs, which are often under the surface and deeper than we really feel. And the real need is, is, is someone to provide you justification when you stand before God. And just when he tells us we all sin, we all fall short, just when we're feeling hopeless and, and helpless, and, and, and just when it's totally, totally demoralizing, that's when Paul says two amazing words. But now. But now. Two glorious words. But now. Chapters four and five are about this question. Justification, how do I get it? Paul will explain and illustrate what justification is in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4 is a revolutionary chapter. It's a breakthrough chapter. It's the difference between Christianity and every other religious system that's out there. Every other religious system says when people have not pleased their God, we have to make up the gap between God 
and us ourselves through our own works or through our own merits. Christianity teaches that we are actually saved by faith in the work of another. And we just have to have faith in him, which is amazing. Third, he will ask this question in chapter 6 through 8, justification, how will it affect me? Chapter 6 through 8 deals with our relationship that's been changed, our relationship with the, the law has changed, our relationship with sin has changed, our relationship with God's Holy Spirit has changed. Chapter 6 through 8 teaches us this, the power of sin can be broken in your life and mine. Amen. Chapter 8 is just, just amazing. My favorite chapter in the Bible. It teaches us that when, when we are in Christ, God is for us in every situation in our life. That now nothing can separate us from the love of God, which he poured out through his Holy Spirit. Not life or death or anything else in all of creation. His love never fails. Amen. And then in chapter 9 through 11, he asks this question about justification. Why did Israel reject it? All the disciples and Jesus himself were Jewish, yet the Jewish people largely, and to this day, reject Jesus as their Messiah. Here, Paul explains why that happened and how it's all going to work out. And then at the end of this doctrine section, he kind of backs away. And he looks at the big picture and the plan of our sovereign God, his master plan of salvation for all peoples, Jew and Gentile. And God will receive all of the glory for this. And he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? For from him and through him and for him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Wow. That's where the doctrine section ends. And then Paul says, now, in view of this, what I've spent the whole book writing to you about, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Out of gratitude for all that he has done for us, we put all our energy and resources now at his disposal as his bondservant. So this is how the book of Romans is, is laid out. My goal is that you become very familiar with the structure of, of this book. I want you to notice one more phrase that happens at the beginning and, and at the end. There's a word that shows up in chapter 1, verse 11, and it shows up again in chapter 16, verse 25, and it's the word establish or to make you strong. Uh, the word means to, to make firm and steadfast. In this context, it describes making someone more resolved in their belief and in their doctrine. And so Paul begins with that word and he ends with that word, which is a bracketing technique that he likes to do in his letters because this is Paul's heart for the church. This is why the letter exists, so that we might be established in the gospel. Let me put the purpose statement up on the screen. The purpose of Romans is to encourage godly behavior by establishing its readers, that's you and me, in a thorough understanding of the gospel. Friends, life is hard, and there are some things that will happen to you and you will encounter, if you haven't already, that will just knock you off of your feet if you are not established. And so Paul's prayer, my prayer for our church during this series is that we might be more firmly established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that structure in mind, which I hope you'll become very familiar with, 
for our third section today, I just want to take a look at the big idea or the, the thesis statement or, or Paul's executive summary of the book of Romans. In verses six, 16 and 17, he gives us the theme of this letter. This is a life-altering statement that you need to get deep down in your heart. Take a look. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. There is so much here. Nearly every word will be expanded on in the coming chapters. We will unpack all of these themes in our series together over the next six months. But this is precisely why Paul is so excited about the gospel. It is full of rich theology and many blessings. But for now, I just want you to notice three key phrases in this section. Key phrase number one, Paul says, I am not ashamed. The word means to be offended. Friends, have you noticed that the gospel is offensive? There is a temptation to be ashamed because it is offensive. Why? Because the gospel means a few very, you know, hard-edged truths. First of all, the gospel means we're wrong. We think we're not so bad. We think we're really good at heart. The gospel says we're wrong about that. The gospel says we are not okay on our own. We are not right with God. And we can't figure it out. So people get offended at that. People are ashamed of that, but not Paul. Secondly, the gospel means we can't fix it ourselves. This is the problem with self-help. The self who's trying to help you, it's like really messed up. <laughs> I'm preaching myself here. We are so messed up, we can't try harder and get it right next time. No, we need salvation. We need rescue, this verse says. The gospel tells us I don't measure up on my own. Now, people don't want to hear that. People are offended at that. People are ashamed about that. Not Paul. Paul says, I am not ashamed. Key phrase number one. Key phrase number two. The gospel is the power of God. The power of God. Now, at first glance, a religion that is based around their Messiah that was crucified and killed does not look very powerful. I remember there's this scene in Star Wars where Yoda is, is training Luke Skywalker, and at this point, Luke doesn't know that Yoda used to be like a big, huge Jedi, right? And Luke's like, you? How could you be a Jedi? You know, like little, little Yoda. And Yoda is like, judge me by my size, you do. And uh, Luke's like, I can't believe it's you. You, you. you used to be a Jedi. How could you be so powerful? This is what Paul is saying about the gospel. Looks can be deceiving. The gospel packs a, a powerful punch. I came across this amazing quote by Robert Capon. Listen to this. Quote, the epistle to the Romans has sat around in the church since the first century like a bomb ticking away the death of religion. And every time it's been picked up, the ear-splitting freedom in it has gone off with a roar. The only sad thing is that the church as an institution has spent most of its time playing bomb squad and trying to def defuse it. For your comfort, though, it can't be done. 
Your freedom remains as close to your life as Jesus and as available to your understanding as the nearest copy. Like Augustine, take and read and then hold on to your hat. Compared to that explosion, the clap of doom sounds like a cap pistol. The gospel is the power of God. Theodore, a Syrian bishop in the 5th century, said the gospel is like a pepper. Doesn't look like much, but man, when you bite into a jalapeno, it, you know, it induces some fire. Just like that, the gospel can appear like an interesting idea or a good philosophy or a, you know, Jesus is a good teacher. When you bite into a pepper, how does that feel? I'm burning, man. Give me the chips. Give me the water. What does it taste like? It's powerful. You can't not be affected by a jalapeno pepper when you eat it, right? The gospel is like that. When you bite into this pepper, it is powerful. The next time you eat a jalapeno, remember, this is about the gospel. (laughs) Think about this. How did it come about that the most important theological Christian work ever written came from a former Jewish Pharisee who hated Christianity and helped kill Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and persecuted the early church with passion? How did it happen that this man wrote this 22-page, 7,100-word letter that century after century has been the flame at which one great Christian leader after another has kindled his own torch to the revival of the church and the enrichment of Christianity? How did that happen? It is the power of God. The power of God. I'm not ashamed. The power of God. Third key phrase. The righteousness of God is revealed. Again, the word righteous means to be in right standing with another party. You're acceptable to them. It's a relational term. Your record has nothing on it that would jeopardize that relationship. The other party has nothing against you. Notice in verse 17. It's in the gospel that God's righteousness is revealed. Verse 17 is the verse that broke through to Martin Luther. Luther was a German lawyer. He was an Augustinian monk in the stream of Augustine. He living in the 1500s. Funny story. Well, my, my daughter Michaela was five years old. She saw a picture of Martin Luther on a book that was laying around my house somewhere, and she goes, Dad, that lady is really funny looking. I'm like, it's not a lady. It's, it's, a, it's the father of the Protestant Reformation. Never, never mind. You're five years old. Luther had been taught that God required him to live a righteous life to be saved. And he pursued this goal with great passion, great fervor. So he became a monk. But what you need to know is Luther was a man with a troubled conscience. He was known to spend hours and hours in personal confession with his priest. One time, Luther went to Rome and he climbed those steps that are there, the very steps that are the original steps where Pilate judged Jesus. They moved them from Jerusalem to Rome. And Luther climbs them on his knees, saying the rosary like he was taught, as some of the mystics did. But that didn't make him feel any better either. At the end of it, he said this, who knows if it's even true? In other words, the more strenuously... Luther sought after righteousness and forgiveness from God, the more elusive it became. When he was asked one time if he loved God, Luther said this, love God 
sometimes I hate God. I see God as a consuming, righteous judge, always ready to condemn me for never measuring up. So his teachers, not knowing what to do with him, said, why don't you become a professor and teach the book of Romans? So he says, okay, and he starts studying, and he digs into chapter 1, and then he gets to this phrase in chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God. And at this point, Luther thinks this is the righteousness that, that is a characteristic of God. It's the righteousness by which God is righteous. And that's how he's reading it. <clears throat> and then he picks up an old commentary written by St. Augustine. And in his commentary, Augustine said this, let me put it up here. Now, when Paul says the righteousness of God here, he doesn't mean the righteousness by which God is righteous. But rather, he's talking about the righteousness that he gives out as a gift by faith. Amen. The light bulb went on for Luther. Luther said, for the first time in my whole life, I understood it's not the righteousness that God has. It's the righteousness that, that, the righteousness that God gives through imputation, through this transaction, this exchange that takes place where Jesus takes all of my sin and then I get all of his righteousness that he not only died for me, that he, he lived for me and I'm no longer condemned. Instead, God looks at me how he looks at Jesus. And Luther said, when I saw that, I understood the gospel for the very first time and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Charles Wesley, speaking of a similar experience, wrote this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke in the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? Luther said, formerly I used to hate the expression, the righteousness of God. I now begin to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word. As you know, the rest is history. Luther goes on to lead the charge for the recovery of the gospel, and they bring him before all of the Roman Catholic rulers, and they say, Luther, you can't teach like this. You can't spread this message anymore. You have to recant of all of these writings. And Luther says, don't you see, I can't recant. My conscience is held captive by the word of God and, and an act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. It all started because of one verse in one chapter, verse 17 in the book of Romans. That is the power of this book. With this one verse, it was so precious to Luther that whenever he would translate the scriptures, he would translate this verse in gold ink. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life where the doors of paradise swung open and you walked through? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you placed your full faith and trust, completely relying not on your own good works, but on the work of another, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you said yes to Jesus Christ, I believe in you, I place my faith in you? Have you made that decision? If not, I urge you to make that decision today. The righteousness of God is available for you. The only requirement 
is you have faith. The righteous will live by faith. Now, for most of us in this room, we come to church and we've already made that decision. We've already crossed that line of faith. And for those of us here today who've already made that decision, let me suggest to you that the book of Romans is a jalapeno pepper that you need to take another bite into the next few months. And let me suggest a few ways to apply this series in your life. Let me encourage you, first of all, to focus your attention on this book. Start reading and studying the book of Romans on your own. If you need a devotional focus for the year 2020, why not make Romans your choice? Sit down and read it. Next, if you want to grow deeper in community and in study, join one of our small groups or the women's Tuesday morning group who are also going through Romans. Uh, you can pick up this book called Romans for You by Tim Keller that will take you through each passage. I promise it will be a blessing to you. There's discussion questions in there that will also help you as an individual and as a group. And then last, I just want to throw out a challenge for those of you who are willing. Over the next six months, I want to challenge you to memorize Romans chapter 8. Now, for some of you, Bible memorization is not new. For others of you, that seems really daunting, a whole chapter, but you can do it, I promise. It's 39 verses. We'll be here six months. It's like two verses a week. And at the end, you have this whole chapter hidden deep into your heart. Why not find a partner in the church and memorize this chapter together over the next six months? That's my challenge. I hope some of you will take me up on that. I know it will be a blessing to you. Dive into the book of Romans with us this season. We're just getting started. As the worship team comes forward, let me just remind you again of the most important application that I can offer you today. Make sure that you are declared righteous before God. We will all stand before God. And when you do, will God be okay with you? Will you be right before him? Or will your past sins come to accuse you how do you make sure you're righteous before God? The Bible says it's by believing in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, that he gave you a clean slate and a new life so that one day you can stand before God without fear and without blemish, fully righteous in his sight because of what Christ has done for you. Make sure you're right with God. I urge you to place your faith in him. In fact, as we close now, let's pause for a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we begin this new series, we are just overwhelmed by the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. We cannot imagine the love that you had when you decided in eternity past to send your son, Jesus, to come and die for the sins of the world so that we who place our faith in you would not get what we deserve. Instead, we would get what we don't deserve, his perfect righteousness. But we want you to know, oh God, that we are grateful that you thought no price was too high, even the price of your own son, to purchase us for your family. If there's any of my brothers and sisters here today who have not placed their trust in you, I pray that they would do so today. And for all of us, Heavenly Father, we've gathered together around this powerful letter to be reminded of the power of the gospel. Would you bless us with a deeper understanding of it and of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.